Hey everybody, Andrew here. This episode is our first where we officially took the podcast on the road, and we couldn't have done that without the support from you, our listeners. So hey, thank you. We deeply appreciate it, and we're thrilled with who we got to chat with on our first trip, and we can't wait for you to listen. We also wanted to take a special moment to thank our donating members, because without them, these next series of interviews wouldn't have been possible. If you want to help us grow the show and further our reach in getting fantastic, uncensored interviews with artists across the globe, consider being a donating member on our Patreon page. That link is patreon.com forward slash weapon of choice podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash weapon of choice podcast. Even a dollar a month helps. You can find that link in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weaponry to strike a blow against injustice in the world. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back. You're listening to West, West, West and Westworld. <laughs> You're listening to Westworld. You're listening to Westworld of Choice, where we pick apart our favorite Westworld episodes of this past season. No, don't, don't tell me any spoilers because I haven't finished it yet. Yeah, you need to finish it. But this is actually Weapon of Choice podcast. We're That's glad right. you're back. We're glad you're listening. My name is Tommy Franklin. This is Andrew Benda. And uh, yeah, we're going to keep it rocking and rolling in this hot summer, this hot Minnesota summer. But it's uh, it's hot all over the place. Forget that. Just stay cool out there. Stay hydrated. Andrew always reminds me to drink more water. He'll even like hand me water because he keeps his little water tote with him. And I'm like, I'm good. He's looking at me like, no, you're not. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, but yeah. This uh this episode you're tuning into today is with Star Montana, visual artist, photographer, and so much more out of Los Angeles, East Los Angeles, Boyle Heights represents. She always represents, she always represents family to the most. And we loved going to her studio at University Southern California. Her neighbors, by the way, is, uh, her neighbor, by the way, is Patrice Cullen. So we uh, hope to talk to her soon. And we can't wait to bring you this episode. Star Montana is a photo-based artist who lives and works in Los Angeles, California. She was born and raised in Boyle Heights neighborhood of East Los Angeles, which is predominantly Mexican-American and serves as the backdrop to much of her work. Star's imagery deals with class, social environment, and identity within the personal, her family. Three Dots and Teardrops, a long-term project with her family that has dealt with fragmented histories, loss, and the hope of the next generation, was on view at the Princeton... Pr- at was on view at the Vincent Price Art Museum and the UCLA Chicano Studies Research Center. More recently, she has begun to work on her themes within a larger scope of Los Angeles residents via portraiture and video, which resulted in her most recent solo show, I Dream of Los Angeles, at the Main Museum. Starr received her BFA from the School of Visual Arts in 2013 and is currently working on her Master's of Fine Art at USC. Let's run Let's it. roll it. <laughs> When I was like four or five, my grandma used to babysit like all the grandchildren. Um, and also she had my uncle Angel when she was older. And so she didn't know what to do with us. Also, all the ladies in our very uh, 
Latin neighborhood would tell her, like, you have to do something with all these kids. And she would say, okay. And so, like, one of the ladies said, like, put them in the Sunday school. And she'd say, okay. And so she put us all in this crazy ass Sunday school and they picked us all up in this uh, bus. And so I always was like much taller and I just look older. I also look like my cousin's twin. Um, Cause all of us in my family, if you see us, we all look like stamps. We all look exactly alike our DNA. Um, and so we went to the Sunday school and I've always been like a visual person. And it was one of those super radical, um, be good or you're going to burn in house schools. And so I was supposed to go with the babies, like where they're like, Jesus loves you and everything. But instead, they put me with the seven to 11 year olds with my cousin because I stood close to him. And so the first thing is like this like preacher dude is like we're in the front pew and like he's just like telling us like if you commit any sins you're going to just like burn in hell and like there's going to be a lot and i could still vi- i was like visualizing this thing and like all these kids are just like looking and like okay yeah and i was just like visualizing this like thing and i was just like no and i was like looking at it and i just started like i stood up and i said i don't want this and like all these kids are like what's wrong with this kid and i just started screaming i was like no no and they were like calm down i was like and i just got dragged away from this whole little like church and like i remember like everybody's like what's wrong with this girl i was like no and like nobody else had this reaction because they were just like okay we'll be good kids and i was like the first kid that was like no and then like that was it. I was like, yeah, I was like, okay, like something is like, something's up with me. But like, that was like the first time I like really scream like, no, um, or like, what? Like, this seems weird. But well, like the funny thing is it happened again. And when I tell people this, I, it happened again the next week. Like they just like put us in there. They didn't even think like, damn, that little girl really went through something so it went, happened again the next week they put me again in the same pew and i went through the same experience and i flipped out again and then they put and then they were like uh okay something's wrong and i flipped out again because all he was doing was terrorizing kids mm-hmm. um just not to like sin or commit mortal sin whatever this stuff and then after that like i told my mom and my grandma i'm not oh, that's it i'm done with church mm-hmm. and then they like laughed and then they were like oh like no because like supposedly we were catholics and that was it i was done with the religion i like if religion is like meant to terrorize us then i'm done and so from then i was like okay no like i can i can have a voice and that was it my name is star montana and i'm a photo-based artist beautiful well thank you for joining us on weapon of choice podcast star thank you for inviting me on so what is your weapon of choice and what battles are you fighting? Um, so I would say my weapon of choice is a camera. Um, it's not one camera per se. Um, I always like advocate anytime I give like lectures, especially to younger, I don't know, younger people. I wouldn't say like young kids or teens because it's just younger people that 
you know, you can weaponize yourself with information and with images. Visual images can be power. Like if you feel like you can't write your words or you can't like the text isn't powerful, even though I, I don't believe that. Like I felt like for so long I couldn't like, you know, write an essay about my words, even though I do that now, like one image can like start a revolution like look at what's happening with the borders and like how people are actually mobilizing to like stop like what the administration's doing and with what 45 is doing um like i refuse to call him my president images are so powerful we remember images from 200 years ago and from 100 years ago and so my weapon is like a camera and it can be like a cell phone camera. It can be like a beautiful medium format or like a 35 millimeter camera. And so I learned very early on that um, cameras are very powerful and I'm just obsessed with them. And so that's just my weapon of choice and being able to take images and um, do uh, visual narratives have been, I've been able to, uh, share like stories and personal narratives um that are been forgotten in america's psyche and so that's just kind of how i've like been dismantling forgotten histories in america is, is there a uh, photo thus far in your life and love of taking photographs of people um is there a conversation of a particular photograph that has, that was kicked up um often so like did you have a photograph that's you know kicked up a lot of really really energized and powerful conversations a specific photo you can think of yeah so there's a photograph not necessarily in my studio that we're, we're at but mm -hmm. so um and my first major series is called teardrops and three dots mm -hmm. and um so that's like a long-term project that i started with my family mm -hmm. um and I documented my family over a long period of time and um, it was really painful because my family, we've lost so many people and documenting my family through well, not necessarily good times, but just like times we're going through, um, you know, it can be really strenuous on your emotional well-being. Mm -hmm. And so the, the image that has a, uh, I probably have, I've spoke the most about um, in, in like talks and especially talks with like the youth has been the like kind of a self portrait with my mother. So my mother's in the hospital and she's laying on a bed and there's kind of like this Baroque lighting on her and it's angelic and I'm sitting besides her and I have like a little, um, I have a, like a little, visitor uh, patch on me or like those stickers that you get from the hospital says four to seven um and so she my mother suffered from hepatitis c for fuck i don't even know like 20 years and so she got it during um when she was a gang member so she was a gang member in east los angeles and Boyle heights in la um and that's like an epidemic so she had she got uh hepatitis c through uh, shooting heroin um, and there's like a lot of gang members who are dying from hepatitis C it's kind of like the epidemic like the AIDS epidemic of like 
retired and old gangsters and nobody talks about it. And like, Mm. there's been so much discrimination um, because a lot of people are like, well, like you kind of like, it's your fault. Like the same way they treat people that got AIDS through like partying. And in the seventies, they're telling the same people. And I've been there since a child with my mother. Um, so she had hepatitis C and then she also got cirrhosis of the liver. And so through our genetics, um, cirrhosis of the liver is something that killed her father. He was an alcoholic and my mother wasn't an alcoholic. She barely drank when she was a gangster, but it's just something that like, you know, was onset through the hepatitis C. Mm. Um, so during that time in that image, she, um, she had had hepatitis C already for who knows how long i mean it went undiagnosed for a year and but diagnosed for 10 years um and so prior to that in the series you see like that she got a bug bite so many people always ask what happened how did she get the bug bite and what i say is like it does not matter how she got the bug bite what matters is that there was a failed healthcare system and they did not treat her she was supposed to be treated the same way somebody with uh, hiv is supposed to be treated which is like a common cold can kill somebody with that she Mm -hmm. has a very lowered immune system and that's on her chart she has Mm -hmm. medical um and they denied her treatment so they denied her treatment about a week before that image was taken and because they denied her treatment in los angeles it got worse and it grew, the infection grew. And by the time I took that image, it had spread the infection and her body started to shut down and she could not fight the infection. Mm-hmm. And so I have like um, depression, I have immense anxiety, I have PTSD and I have like depression. The depression's from like family, like that's intergenerational trauma. Yeah. Then the PTSD is from how I grew up, like growing up in LA in the 90s. But my mom was trying to soothe me at the time. And so she was like, oh, where's your camera? Like, where's your camera? And she wanted me to photograph her. And so at the time, she told me, like, to photograph her, to actually advocate for, like, a drug-free existence. And not, like, in the way that, like, people, like, religion uses it or anything like that, but actually as a way to say, like, this is what you do. There's a price you pay for everything we do to our bodies. Like, Mm -hmm. we could, like... She's like, I didn't even like to drink. She was like, I was more of an addict. Like, I, I love drugs, but I hated alcohol. She's like, but I was just trying to keep up with the Joneses, you know? Yeah. And now look at me. Like, show your dumb little friends, you know? Mm. And so she made me photograph us like this. Um, and mm. I wouldn't have taken that picture. And so when I photographed us like that, um, it was really for her and it was like advocating this like social justice because my mom was um, an advocate for AA and NA and also for her lifestyle and everything. And because she had already seen so many of her friends die, mm-hmm. like they wanted like they were trying to become like like members of society. They were like they had their tattoos and their faces were worn for what they had had in their lives before and they would get discriminated on and they were just trying to be like good members of society and so many times doors would be shut on them and so they were like trying to be like valued members of society and she was so beloved in her community and so she was like an advocate and she told she taught me how to like advocate for social justice and so like for her that image and she was like a beauty queen for her to like 
actually take that picture was like really valuable and to tell me to take her because i couldn't all i was worried about was my mother mm -hmm. was dying you know mm -hmm. and so um a lot of times like that image and my images they look not one dimensional but they're so much more complicated mm -hmm. um and so yeah i've like spent so many hours talking about that and talking about how we can use images as a way to infiltrate spaces and start up conversations that are much more complex um, and that led us into these spaces. And then we can use oral histories um, to start like these conversations that wouldn't, they you wouldn't necessarily know we're actually having these conversations. So like we've already spent this amount of time talking about my mother's whole history with just this one image, Yeah, you know, so. Thank you. Yeah, it's really sad. Yeah, yeah. And if like, if you're willing to go <laughs> to these places, like, and if you're not, we're, we're good no, with that too. No, like, you know, I'm fine going to them yeah. because, like, again, like, I mean, I lost my mother, you right. know, and I lost my mother at 49, and that was the most painful thing for me. But like, I promised myself when I saw her die that her death would not be in vain. Mm. You know, and there's moments where I cry for my mother, but also there were like I would not let her death be in vain, like the healthcare system um, and discrimination against people based on their past. Like I would never let that mm -hmm. be in vain. Um, you know, who I am and my family's history, it doesn't make them and it and my mother got discriminated on because of who she was and that was like they let her die on that yeah um and my nephew does not have a grandmother i don't have a mother my brother doesn't have a mother because people judged her on her tattoos on her on her uh, medical history like the woman that was taking care of her liver her liver specialist at the hospital at mm -hmm. the time my mother was 21 years clean like that was mm -hmm. the, her number one joy in her life was her sobriety because that meant she was able to be a mother a grandmother right. a, like a a good member of society whatever that meant and i remember her liver specialist this person that's supposed to be saving her life this judgmental doctor asked me are you sure she's not drinking when you're not home there's no way she could have a liver this damaged without her drinking and i was like ready to like scream at this lady i was like her sobriety is her most prized possession like how could you think this about my mother like sh she was obviously discriminating on her and she's mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. you know i just think she might be drinking when you don't know i'm like she goes to aa meetings like no but i knew like the way she was dressed and everything the doctor and the way she looked at my mother she was looking down on her so it was just like clearly there's classism there's racism, there's all this stuff, you know? And when I would call it on the, the doctors would act like I had like an aluminum hat and like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. if I was yeah. like insane. Yeah, and, and you, you probably had to pull back sometimes cause you're like, at the end of the day, I'm here to see my mother not die. Yeah. Please do what you can. Yeah, exactly. Cause I can't, I can't change the system before my mother does or doesn't die. So yeah. you have to toe that line with these. Yeah racist yeah doctors yeah so but then when she did die that's what i'm saying like it's so painful to talk about it but it's like yeah, yeah. i will talk about it because yeah. it's like i don't want somebody else's mother 
father, sister, something like that, to die, die to die about like this. So I do talk about these histories or these systems, and I do go there and I do say like, use weapons of choice or use your words, use images, talk about these systems, dismantle them, mm-hmm. you know, so this stops happening. And you're honoring her wish. I mean, obviously she saw the artist in you and she believed in you as much to know that this is a lifetime promise, a lifetime confidence in you to do what she asked of you beyond just that photograph. Are you, um, you know, what ways are you honoring um, what she visualized for you beyond that photograph and beyond getting through that death when you're creating, how is that showing up, honoring your mother? I think like in the ways I honor my mother, um, I think I just say speak my truth. Like she, mm-hmm. like people are every time like um, I do like artist talks or even just conversations, people are like, oh my God, you're like so honest or I've, I've never heard somebody speak like this or like you just like keep it really real. And it sounds like goofy even like repeating that. Mm-hmm. Um, but like when I did an interview once, somebody's like, what causes you to be so like honest? And I like had to think about it for a minute. And I was like, I think I grew up like, and I grew up in AA and NA since I was like in diapers. Mm. Um, so like there were people who had been at their worst. Um, and then they came into these rooms and, you know, it's like, you know, Adam B and Tommy C, right? <laughs> Whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you we all know each other's name or first name and and then you're like you know i was homeless and you know i had to do this and and i was at my worst and and people say like some really horrific things in order to survive or like how they were in prison for like 30 years and and then you see them and and they're really amazing people and i consider these people like my aunts and uncles and more than like my own blood that I really didn't get raised with because a lot of them were dead and they're amazing people. Like they went to my birthday parties and they showed up for me and they were amazing. And they always said like, don't be like me. Like don't live life much more harder in your, in your early life. Like, like learn from my mistakes. Um, and it was just really profound, like how much knowledge they gave me, but also like how vulnerable they were for to each other. And so I always just heard them speaking their truth and how like they would say when they hid themselves or why they would get loaded, like all the horrific things have happened to them early in their life and like how they were hiding that with like drugs Mm. and alcohol. Like I just kind of wanted to avoid that. Like I like really, really internalized. That's not like I haven't like done done drugs and alcohol. Totally did that when I was like a teenager because my mom was dying. Like, um, but I really quickly was like, you know what? I just want to like not like waste ten years of my life. I just want to like kind of get past that. Um, and so for me, it's like I just want to like honor her by just being like truthful and saying everything how I feel and like like dismantling secrets and breaking these cycles and being really close to my brother and being there for my nephew and just just being vulnerable with mm-hmm. myself and with my audience because mm-hmm. she was a really beloved person because she was so vulnerable with everybody that was in her community. And so I take that with my art. 
and a lot of the people you grew up around that were like aunts and uncles to you there, keeping it real and vulnerability for them. Part of that was being on a path toward recovery for yeah. them, and you being vulnerable and keeping it real through your art. Um, is it, you know, do you see that as like as a healing? Component. Yeah, very much. My family is like so. I always talk about my family, and I mean like many generations of my family, not just my mother. I mean, my mother's mother, my grandma, and and her grandma, like her mother. Like, I mean, my family. Shit, like, there's just been like endless suffering, like endless like tragedy, like my grandma like would tell us this shitty ass story of how like in mexico like that um and like one of my cousins who i'm really close with like she can say the same story like verbatim about how in mexico uh, our great great grandmother or grandmother sister like slept with like uh brujas uh husband and like where our family is just cursed like the women in our in our family are cursed to like be mentally like ill and to like suffer and like just like completely blaming women like that mm. we're just gonna just live in like suffer like with mental illness with like husbands that like beat us and like the minute we get married we're just gonna live like we're gonna be doomed and like my grandma would tell me this story about like how like we're meant to like suffer as women and especially like our children and i remember again when she told me this story i would be like oh my god so like we're meant to be cursed She's like yeah that's that's our our curse and I said, all right, then I'm not getting married and I'm not having children. And she's like, wait, no, like you have to like have like children and you have to get married. What are you talking about? I said, you just told me when I get married, he's going to kick my ass and like my children are going to like die and be cursed. So I know how to break this curse. Like, that's it. It ends with me. And yeah. she's like no like why would you do that i was like because i'm not selfish but like this lineage like <laughs> you hear this like stories of like all these people in my family and me and my cousin like have like cried cried and she's like do you think we're cursed do you truly mm -hmm. think we're cursed and i was like no that's like the patriarchy and misogyny like i'm like i think we're mentally ill like i think like it's not our fault but like we're not Curse. like mm -hmm. you know like a bunch of these women need to leave these motherfuckers like yeah, that's yeah. it you know like we're not cursed mm -hmm. and so like for me it's like telling the truth of my family and um just being honest and vulnerable and just breaking these cycles and also healing like my family and mm -hmm. healing like the past generations and then like when i did my first solo show it just had to do with my family and also mm -hmm. going back to like other histories and then like some of the people in the show my auntie rest in peace she's like that didn't happen like that's not the truth but it's also like denying it like it's just like mm. not being able to deal with it and my aunt was like a really bad drug addict and she was like i don't know if she was schizophrenic or i don't know if the drugs brought it on like we never really knew mm -hmm. um but she was just like you know the way you deal with it is like you kind of just push it all down 
and you drink the beer and you just, you know, you don't think about it. I'm like, no, auntie, like, that is why we're all addicts. That is why, mm -hmm. like, you know, we're all crazy. Like, we got this big argument. And I was like, I'm like, done with that. Like, don't you want things to be better for your grandchildren and for my nephew? Like, don't you want this shit to end? Like, I'm done. I am so done. And so, yeah, like, with my family, they were just like, no, it, it didn't happen. That did, I'm like, I was there. It happened. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, yeah, like, yeah, my art is all about, like, healing. And, like, I don't, like, I don't care if it's, like, for a larger audience. At least, like, my work will always be just for myself and to heal. Because, like, I am so done, like being in this much pain and like I don't live a very painful life anymore like in the beginning when I was making the work it was so painful and now it's like the pain is really really subsided and like I feel in a much better place thank you yeah, yeah. thank you for sure using the camera as you know this is my this is my healing device for myself for my family and you know when did that start so I started at East Los Angeles College, which is like the community college uh, for kind of like for East L.A. And then Monterey Park is like adjacent. Um, and so I started at 16 mm -hmm. and it's a technical school. You're supposed to learn technical abilities there, which I did totally. Um, but so my reality was my reality was. A very sick mother my mom had hepatitis mm -hmm. c she did something called interferon which was um kind of like chemo for hep c and it's ugly like mm -hmm. you she gained like 100 pounds she was already like a very chunky woman like kind of like my body a little bit chubbier because she had had kids right um and but she gained like 100 pounds she lost her hair she would be like passed out for a while my aunt was a heroin addict at the time my grandma was like she's just nuts like i don't know there's no other way to like my my grandma lost you know one kid at childbirth because of a shitty doctor like told her to hold mm -hmm. it in and like i felt like she checked out you know of reality then then my uncle angel who i love so much he was like my older um older brother he was only nine years older than me, um, got murdered in the 90s and 95. And then that was it. My grandma was like just mm -hmm. completely checked out. So, you know, that's my family there. And so my grandma's like wacky and just in her own world. And so um, this is my reality. Um, my mom's sick. My aunt's like nutty. I have cousins, but they're kind of just scattered because, you know, their mom's not really around. And so I'm doing technical school. But I would just like kind of like do the assignments and then I'd come home kind of like photograph my mom. I didn't really have a camera at the time. I would like check out cameras or stuff like that. And I would like take some shots of my family who was like just at our house because our house was kind of like the rock. My grandma never liked anybody at her house. She was like really isolated in that way. Um and so then, like, so I'd take some images of, of my family. And what I would do is, I was really in the punk scene in East L.A., mm -hmm. great scene. And so um, it was, 
I would use, I finally got kind of got a camera and then I would go out and like photograph my friends. So I was a punk. My cousin Junior, who was two years older than me, who I grew up with, yeah. was a gangster. And so there was like this clashing of worlds. So I would photograph my cousin's scene, who is more gangster, and then my scene, who is, which was more punk. And so it was like doing tr- like, you know, a mix of cultures and then I'd do some images of our crazy ass family who was at my house and it was just like dealing with what is my reality and not really thinking about it consciously but like the subconscious of like you know I don't know kind of like man golden in a way just like glimpses of of, of reality um so this went on for like two years from when i was like 16 to 18 and then like we had like we would move we had to move this like when we got evicted the first time from our main family house and then when i was 19 my family my my family just completely fell apart my cousin junior got murdered really ugly i mean just the worst way like ever you can get murdered just it was just horrific and like this just continue this is like the cycle of my family so my cousin junior gets murdered on the main streets in Boyle heights which is like caesar chavez and soto and he's dating my one of my best friends at the time and my family hates that he's dating my best friend because she's wild i mean she is the wildest person but also my cousin is just insane like those two are like just they hype each other up and doing it. like she's from another she's from one gang he's from one gang but their gangs are um friendly and some gangs are not friendly mm-hmm. so um it's just madness his death he got like murdered at a chinese food um spot and she they were actually like going to a funeral of her little friend who was my friend too um and like she was crying and like she was looking like a little raccoon and so he was like telling her to control herself and she's like a nut when she was like crying and I know this about her. And so she goes to the bathroom and when she goes to the bathroom, he um somebody sees him feeding his son and they come and just shoot him in the back of the head. So then it seems suspicious like that she sets him up and all this stuff but it's like that was the love of her life like you know like mm. two really psychotic people love each other it's like sit and nancy type of thing mm. and mm. so then my family goes insane each other's gangs and it was just it was horrible my aunt who's like the schizophrenic one that was her firstborn and then it was just awful and so during that time i'm just like photographing my family um dealing with them my mom had almost died the first time and it's just like from there like my life had been kind of da- uh going in and out of my family hmm. and then from there it's just like no i'm like done kind of tiptoeing around them because you know me and my cousin would just make fun of our family about how crazy they were and why we were the way we are because we were both really considered um highly intelligent when we'd get to tested me and junior um and then when you know each one of us in our family we had a pair so junior was my pair we were two years apart and then there's my brother frankie and his pair with chantal which is junior's sister and it's like i lost my like Mm -hmm. cosmic twin and so when i lost him i was like oh that's it like i can't 
like I can't share with anybody for the rest of my life everything like about grandma, about our crazy mothers, about this history. So it's like I start to really like dissect like what why is our family like this? And so mm-hmm. then I really dove deep into our family through photography. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And it was so uncomfortable because I was like, I have to do this for him and to kind of break the cycle because my brother was the next boy. We don't have much boys in our family. It's like a lot of women, but any boy that was in our family and not just our little line of the family, there was seven siblings in my grandma's family. And like most of the siblings that had boys, all of them were murdered. So like when I saw that my brother was the next one i was like no i have to figure this out and luckily he was a punk and he still is but i was like enough like Mm. this is like i'm tired of this and so i really started to dissect my family through photography um through writing and everything and started to like take like chicano classes to understand why did we come because we came from el paso texas Mm -hmm. to los angeles and that's such a big leap in mm-hmm. Mexico and and I just wanted to understand everything. We disconnect it from our Mexican roots in that way. And I don't mean in a nationalist way, but in a, in a way that it's so hard to go visit our family that way. Right. Mm-hmm. So it really, it became like a weird ritualistic way to like dive into photographing my family. And then um, I did it for so many years. Um, and throughout that time after Junior passed away, my mom passed away next and then I photographed that process um and then um I photographed my nephew being born and kind of like happiness coming into our family um because there hasn't been much happiness in our family but my nephew being born and giving like hope and faith into our family and how like the next generation which is my nephew Mm -hmm. and how you know children do bring happiness like there's so much sadness in my family but then like there are these like little kids and like he's like doesn't care about anything like he is not sad he does not care about like 80 years of death he's just like take me to go see incredibles and like buy me some legos and like why are you so sad and like he'll like jump around and he's like no like it's okay like don't be sad picky and that's what he calls me picky and like he's just like it's okay you know like he's just like so he's like the happiest kid and so like in that there's so much healing in that yeah, you're yeah. Se- are you seeing a light with him in terms of that breaking of the cycle? Yeah, like, he's a boy and he's so there's well, I full mean, of light, you know. Yeah, he's. I mean, in that it's scary too mm-hmm. because he is a boy. Because mm-hmm. then there's a new boy, you know. So then we still live in that area, mm-hmm. um, and that is incredibly terrifying, you know, because there's still gangs and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, if it was a girl, it'd be different, and that sucks. Those right. binaries. But I still am hopeful, you know. You And you rejected the notion with your cousin through conversations with your cousin about that, that curse that, you know, we as me and you, cuz, we're women in the family, but we reject this curse, right? Yeah. Well, and then did, so you were you know, rejecting that notion of that curse with the women along the lines of the family history. And then all these boys and men are being murdered. Did, did y'all ever like perceive that as a curse? Well, that's the thing is, like, 
It's so complex. Yeah, no, I I totally get what you're saying. And Mm -hmm. that's the thing is like, I feel so conflicted with everything because when my grandma would tell me the curse, it's only geared towards the women, you know? And it feels very, like, it feels like everybody who meets my family or the women are like, oh, they're so beautiful. You guys are so, you know, and I feel like in that way, it's like, keeping us down you know what i mean like keeping Mm -hmm. us like oh make sure you're married or like you know if like if you like do anything bad like it's your fault you know what i mean and that and like i am like totally like you know that like feminist that like dissects like you know blaming and all so it's like in that way i i think about those things like why blame that stuff and like what what actions do that do and like uh domestic violence and stuff like all that stuff but like, so I went to go see a, a psychiatrist like two years ago. And like, cause like I would suffer some like hardcore depression and then my mom would sleep like hardcore throughout my childhood. Like I remember just Saturdays, whenever she'd get her day off, she'd be like, don't wake me up. Like if cereal and stuff like that, like not always, but there'd be like these bouts of her sleeping mm-hmm. hardcore. And my grandma, like there's just like, everybody sleeping on their days off for like 18 hours right my grandma would make sure we had money for pizza but like don't bother me right mm. and then so i finally i told my my psychiatrist when i was like i'm like breaking the cycle i was like i'm gonna go see a psychiatrist i don't care if i'm like quote unquote crazy i like i'd rather be crazy and know what type of crazy i am than like yeah. you know just keep this mystery and so then um he was like you know i think like you have this type of depression because then like he asked oh did you ever do this drug this drug this and then how do you react to it and luckily i had did a bunch of drugs and so i was able to like tell him like well i kind of like get paranoid on marijuana Mm -hmm. and like i tried coke when i was young and it made me really sleepy and he's like oh i'm like so happy you did that like not like and he's like weirdly he's like I think this tells us a lot yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. give me he, something yeah. yeah and he's like did you try ecstasy and i was like no he's like oh he's like <laughs> he's like because that would really put you in this thing he's like he's like because people that have exactly what you're saying have were born chemically imbalanced and it actually it goes through the maternal line and oh my like gosh. yeah Mm, you've got to be like yeah light bulb moment right yeah and it made me like want to cry and he's like and it just gets passed passed down he's like like through like the women like that you guys are not born with like these neural met like neural something like the things that you know that you can hold on to serotonin and he's like and it's not your fault and then like when he said i just started sobbing because i was like you don't understand and i told him the story and he's like well yeah like they probably start to say that story because it's like there's an easier way to like make sense of things like if like back in the 1800s or the late 1800s early night that like yeah you're that person probably got sent to psychiatry because like or like a, a sane asylum whatever you want to call them back in those days because she probably was wildly now and like mm-hmm. they couldn't handle it so then you just say whatever and he's like, no, but it's not your fault. It's not your mom's fault. It's not your grandma's fault. It's just that you guys are not born with it. And now we can easily understand this thing. Wow. And I just like started crying. And so like I took this antidepressant. I take it every day. And like my brain really does feel better. And like I went 
to where my family was from last year for the first time ever, like Chihuahua. And like, I just like, I don't know, there was like so much healing, but then like, I just felt sad that like all these women for so long, all these generations just always thought it was like this curse, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And I just like was so emotional and I'm actually gonna go back this summer and do some work there. Um, and it's just like the most emotional thing because they truly believe it. Like, and it, but it's also with men too. Like there's really a lot of depressives and like all kinds of psychological issues with men. But a, a lot of time it's just like, we just don't want to admit it. We don't want to admit something's wrong or we feel something in our head. And like, we're like, oh, it's clearly something else or we want to hide it with like drugs, alcohol, like all that stuff. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not judging it because I understand it, but it's like, you know, with my own family, like, I feel like I was the first person to ever really go to a psychiatrist and say, hey, there's something wrong, mm -hmm. you know? And I feel so much empathy for everybody behind it, like in my family that never could admit something was wrong. Mm -hmm. They knew something was wrong, but they just were like, I can't, I can't admit it. So it was like sad. So in that way, it was like, all right, like, if I have children, something like that, I'm gonna totally tell them like, you're not cursed. We might have like some like neural like neural transmitters wrong, and it's okay. Like that's it's not your fault. So, yeah, it was like crazy, but like, yeah, like, and I've like read so much things where a lot of that is like, you know, you're just like trying to like, you know, drink it away or do drugs away because like you just feel something wrong in your brain, you know, and you don't know how to deal with it and cope with it. Yeah, it's um. So then you're just internally for yourself and via your whole family's history are learning a mode of resilience, right? And now we're and then it, then it channels into some of your photography as you grow with your art and your photography, and then when we get to talk about like grander scale social justice issues, which themes all of those themes intersect with the way you just live your life. Um, and never forgetting history and the generations that went into our ability, like our our ability to resist comes from generations past as well as black and brown people, indigenous people. Um, and I find it very interesting how you talk about us going from being tortured endlessly for white supremacist gain to being, you know, in modern times, uh, fetishized and further mask our people's pain and suffering while benefiting from capitalism. You know, can you tell us more about how we've come from, you know, I just, I've heard you talk about that before, you know, the, you know, the torture of black and brown people with Tuskegee and on and on. And now these days we're being fetishized for, you know, pop culture, capitalism, ways to like, just make a buck off who we are without even knowing us other than the fact that they want to oppress us, you know? Yeah, totally. So like, that's the thing is like, I'm really, really like, I talk so much about that and I'm like, so like, it angers me and I'm not somebody like, I'm like, try so hard not to get like angry because like, I know how, like how bad, not bad, or I guess I know how toxic anger can be like you know i mobilize my anger for the right causes mm -hmm. because like mm -hmm. i grew up in a community where hate and violence where it's like the american government like it built these 
communities to leave us to rot and die, you know? And when I say that, again, like some people think like, again, I'm wearing like an aluminum hat, you know, and that's our like joke. But it's like, no, like do the history. Like they totally like constructed this shit Mm -hmm. to like leave us here and to die. And we did it. You know, we like made really great food and we like we prospered and stuff like that. And like some people think we're mutants and maybe we are. But hey, look at the X-Men. You know, I mean, like we're amazing, you know. So, like, it's, I'm always referencing the history because I can't stand when people try to use who I am against me or to, like, hurt me and hurt people like me because I have interviewed so many people mm-hmm. and how many tears I've seen, like, and, like, I'm so empathetic to people. And I've seen endless tears when I talk about identity with people. And especially when it comes to people's identity in Los Angeles and because I'm based here, but like, you know, we are like survivors and people tend to like just use the word survivor for certain things. But like, it's like, no, like when I talk to people, it's like, I'm a survivor. I should not be here. Like so many times like i should not have been here i could have been murdered like i have talked my way out of like being murdered by crazy ass dudes like trying to rape me and my friends of like gang violence out of all this shit and i'm like i have survived so it's like i know what i'm talking about like you won't like one day see like on the internet like fake like artist star montana and like i grew up in the palette and like like nah like i have like survived all this shit you know and so like it makes me so angry when now people are trying to capitalize on this stuff mm. for like, you know, just a commodity. It's like, no, like there's people still living through this stuff and still like there's still gangs like where I live in Boyle Heights. There's still like youngsters that are now coming up and they're still like going through the gang stuff. And it's like I have empathy for them in a different way because like there are like a lot of the young dudes that are are joining gangs there a lot of them live in these like rv trailers and like they don't go to school and like they're like they just look like so lost they're like you know they were like i seen them when they were like 13 and 12 and now like they're joining the local gangs and like now they look like they have like little better shoes and stuff like that and like i thought like the gang life was gonna die off like i was hoping the last generation would be the end Mm -hmm. and not it's like Mm -hmm. starting right back up you know like i thought okay like this is gonna end like it's like outdated you know and not like it's coming right back up because like they need like those young dudes that are like lost in the world you know Mm -hmm. they that need a family and so when then like corporations do this branding thing and they commodify these areas or then they like gentrify like this Christopher Columbus ideology in like these areas of like New York and Los Angeles and like oh like we're discovering them it's like how can you discover a lab that has always been here we've always been here you did not want this land and we stood here and we like we we took care of this land and we've been here and now you're kicking us out and like we have communities and yeah we have certain subcultures and now you're trying to brand it and like makes mad money like it just like 
frustrates me and it angers me. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like it. I always acknowledge it because like the whole thing of like when people were like trying to dress up like as cholos um, a few gen- a few years ago, like on Instagram. It's like, I'm not one to be like, oh, you can't do that or that's wrong. But like a whole big thing about like my family, like died because of like gang culture. And like, it's like, you don't understand why these people join gangs. Like you don't understand why they like look like that. Like they were looking to belong. And like, there was like all this, like it came from the Pachuco culture and all this other stuff. And like, even like in South Central with like Latino culture and black culture, like there's a history of white people just join these like community gangs and stuff like that because, you know, they just were lost and they wanted to belong and not because of poverty, because yeah. you just feel like you're like so lost, you know, mm-hmm. it's not their appearance that pisses you off. It's their lack of understanding. Yeah. Because you have to live every day. Yeah. And other people do. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It's like, when I was a youngster, I like so many times, like I almost got killed by gangsters. Um, and you know, I don't have any hate for them because, like, it's again, it's like I understand you join this gang because you live in this area and you need protection. Like, I get it, I mm-hmm. understand the rules, I understand you live in this area, you need to join this gang. Like, that's it, you know. But you will never see me dress up like a gangster or like a faux gangster or anything like that. It's like if you put on this, you know, it's a it's a it's a costume, you know, and it's it's like you can easily take it on or you can put it on and off, and some people can't. Some mm-hmm. people have died and been slid on the streets for this these sets of clothes and it's like it's not a costume it's like i don't know it's a uniform it's like a soldier uniform and that's totally different things a soldier's uniform and a costume is like and it's like i can't vouch for that and i don't think it's okay so it's like i'm not down with commodification and i'm not down with the costume yeah yeah how is your photography capturing those things to sort of fight that um, commodification, but also you know you, you do these interviews with with this with your um, people you, you photograph. So w- what do you also kind of witness while you're doing those interviews? You know how how often do these people get asked about their lives, their identity, and you know get their photos taken? Um, so most people I ask. Um, so I've done like about 40 or 50 in like the whole four years that I've been doing it. And I'm like, I always tell people like, I work like really slow. Like I'm like the slowest photographer um, or at least portrait photographer. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times like in the beginning, it was because I was in New York. And so I would only be able to come back to LA yeah. once a year. And then now like I've worked a little bit faster. And so I'm going to start again. Um, And most of the people that I've photographed have never been interviewed. I've never had like formal portraits taken. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in the beginning, um, I would just find people in the street and I would just ask them if I could photograph them. Um, And they would say, yeah, like 
sure, you know. Um, and then I would just talk to them, have a like really long conversation with them. So it was like I learned the process as I went. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I never photograph anybody that's like hesitant because I feel like, okay, like I don't want to photograph anybody that's like standoffish or anything like that. It has to be somebody that's like into it. Mm-hmm. And I explained to them like I'm photographing this to compare to combat like stereotypes and mar- marginalization um, imagery of like what people um, consider like who are like people from like East Los Angeles and South South Central, I always say South Central, because I like hate the idea of like South LA, like they erased the, the name like South Central in order to erase the violent history mm. of like South Central. But like mm-hmm. for me, like, my aunt lived in South Central for a while. Like I have a lot of friends that like grew up in South Central and it's just like, I'm so used to studying South Central. So like I would go to like South Central and like just ask people and they'd be like, yeah, sure. Like that sounds cool. And like, if you see my camera, it's a Mamiya 6-7. So it's like a, like a beast that's like really heavy. I need a tripod. And so it looks like a really formal old school camera. So then people like really get into it. It takes me like five minutes to um, set it up. And so like, like people feel like, oh, wow, this is like Mm. a really formal, legit Mm -hmm. um, picture that's going to happen. So first, like um, I would take the picture and then I would interview them. Um, Now as it's gone on, sometimes I do the interview first and then the the picture later it honestly depends on the sun because i really love magic hour and so it depends mm-hmm. on the time of year um so this one's like separate mm-hmm. um but like these two are like around well that one's like different this is like my first one that i did but that's magic hour and these two are like after magic hour and this because i was trying to get ruby for so long mm-hmm. um and so yeah, and then this one's like magic hour. Um, but yeah, so um, yeah, so I'll like set it up and talk to them, and then like, we do this interview, and then like I'll ask like your name and like you know um, where where do you live, and like it's just really informal, and then kind of like we just have these really long conversations, and like you know just trying to get any information and seeing where they're comfortable because some people are just like really uncomfortable with getting interviewed but since i'm like pretty talkative like well i'll just kind of be like oh well just like you know like you know where do you live or like where'd you go to school or stuff wherever like they feel like they like the conversation to lead or stuff like that and like how do you feel about la like what's going on right now and so like they'll like go along a while for that Mm -hmm. and some people will feel a lot about their childhood or things that have happened or just how they feel like people see them in in la and it's really interesting sometimes it's like incredibly heartbreaking and i feel a lot of what people are saying like you know how they feel like invisible to the outside world outside of their own community and that was a lot of what got me to do this project is like when I was going to school in New York I you know I was from LA I was born and raised in Boyle Heights and then you know also East LA um but people would say like oh you sound like um white or oh you like punk rock music or like just really stupid shit like you know because I was like Mexican and I was from LA um 
that they just assumed all this stuff about me, all these weird stereotypes. They're like, oh, you like punk music? It's like, what do you think I would like? What exactly, what, then what type of music do you think? And they'd be like, oh, you're really tall. Like, really tall for what? For a Mexican or what? You know, like, <laughs> what exactly, what are you leading to? And, or I was really light skinned because there's a lot of Mexicans in New York. People actually don't realize that better. Not in New York or don't know a lot of Mexicans in New York because I got to meet a lot of Mexicans, but they're from Puebla. So this little small southern state in um, Mexico. Um, but a lot of Pueblanos are indigenous. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm super mixed. Like I got to do that little 23 of me. Um, so I just, I look like a mutt. I'm like totally fine saying like I look like a mutt. So like um, I don't look like a quote unquote stereotypical Mexican to them. And so I'd be like, that's just like really racist. Um, and then they'd be like, no, I don't mean that. Like, I mean that in a good way. I'm like, that, there's no good way to be racist. <laughs> yeah. So... You know, and then I would ask them, what do you think people from L.A. look like? And they would be like, you know, Hollywood. I'm like, you know, that's not really that's not um, the majority of people from L.A. L.A. has a lot of Latin people. It has a lot of black people and a lot of Asian people and a lot of people are poor there. And they're like, "Uh, no, like they just couldn't. These are your contemporaries, like fellow students. Yeah, Some progressives and whatnot, like yeah, quote unquote liberals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that pretty par for the course in terms of your experience in New York? Like being yeah. met with that, even in the educational institution. Yeah. yeah, well, that's the thing is like I feel like I got a lot of like I got a lot of what is it like pushback because I talked mm-hmm. about that because you know I of like a lot of middle class and upper class quote unquote liberal people will say shit that they don't realize is classes so when they think oh what i'm saying is not problematic it's like actually you need to check yourself in your intersection you might think that you're liberal but actually you're incredibly racist you're incredibly incredibly classes and you're not really actually like as woke as you think you are like what you're saying is really problematic. And then like, I got a full scholarship to SBA. So like they, like most people there had to pay um, or had to pay like a big uh, chunk of it, whether it even be in private loans. I couldn't even afford private loans. Like I didn't have any co-signers. Like my mom had passed away. Like I love my dad, but he's my stepdad and he has like terrible credit. Like there was nobody. So like I had to get like a full, full scholarship. so like when I went, like I was like a full scholarship baby. Um, and so they were like, I felt like they thought like, oh, we're all amongst ourselves. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. And so there's a mm-hmm. there's something completely different when you think you're amongst yourselves, mm-hmm. you know? And so like, I remember this one dude and like, I've like said it in other interviews where this like asshole, like he was like totally privileged dude. And he told this gallerist, like, I can't help myself if, like, the only people that make incredible art are, like, privileged people. And then I was like, what? I was like, first, and I, like, am, like, really, really, like, outspoken. I was like, first of all, this is just SBA. This is, like, a junior, like, junior, like, year. And, like, 
I know like way better photographers than most people in this class. You guys are just here because you can pay. Yeah. yeah. So you, we're not the best. You're just here. And then everybody was like, like, mm. oh, no. And I was like, and I just said this on a panel and I like truly meant it. Like, yeah. I was like, I don't give a shit if I have any friends in New York. Like, I have friends in LA. Like, I came here for an education. So like, fuck these people, you know? And I would always constantly like just call out people in class because I was like, they need to check themselves. Even if they don't ever really take it in Mm -hmm. at least they'll be used to being called out on because this is really problematic Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. i did and like now they're like i don't know like i feel like the school was kind of like a little weird with me um Mm -hmm. but now they're like the press people are cool with me and some of the people are cool but i'm like "Eh, i don't need you guys to be affiliated with me like i'll go and do this stuff by myself so like this is what inspired this was feeling like this type of work was not being done by the mainstream and also like that I needed to do this. Like I just needed to, I was like, I'm going to learn how to do this. I'm going to learn how to be a portrait photographer. Cause I was a documentary photographer mm-hmm. and I'm going to learn how to make film based work on this medium format thing, because it gives a quality yeah. that can't like be done on digital. And mm-hmm. I'm going to learn how to do oral history. So like it aggravated me enough because New York is like the epicenter of like all photography. And mm-hmm. I don't mean like that's where all the great photographers are, but that's like where you see like, okay, they like all the photographers are showing there. And I would just say like, where is this type of work? And I would not see it. I find it yeah. yeah. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I didn't do it for myself. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this because it needs to be done. I want to learn how to do it. And so I just did it. I was like, okay. And I had a lot of failure. But then after, like, you know, you, like, mess up a cake, you're like, okay, like, third try. Mm-hmm. Like, I kind of am getting it. And so I started to, like, learn how to successfully do it. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm on the right path. And I, I'm, like, really happy with it. And I think it's going to be, like, a lifelong project or at least a 20-year project. Like, there's no way I can do it. Even in four years, I feel mm. like I've only gotten, like, to, like, the tip of that experience of you know you constantly being the person to find, like call people out and tell people you know this is what's problematic what's happening whether that's your classmates or you know I'm sure faculty it was coming from as well how, how did that you know how did you continue to do that and not just become numb to it or like let it you know I'm, I'm sure it beat you up to be constantly put in that position of like I get like I have to be vulnerable again and call these people out and not get any support. You know, what I guess what was that like? Yeah, that's like I think that was like the hardest thing. Like I think about that now, like going back on that and I'm like, oh my god, like mm. how did I not kill myself there? Like I mean, that's like a really brutal statement, but I'm like, oh my god, that was like so like traumatizing because it was you know and i think about that um because i i'm just going back to all this now because i was like on a panel really awesome panel this saturday and it was with three people who i went to east los angeles college the community college i went to and then another painter of mine another friend 
that of mine that's a painter, he went to Chicago. And so we were talking about traumas that happen when you transfer, because the number one thing in community college is like your number one goal is to transfer and also transfer to the school you want to, because like, you know, as like kids, like first, gen- first of all, first generation kids to graduate high school, then you go to community college. Um, and then like a community college, like the transfer rate is like so hard, you know, like you feel like you're never going to do it. You feel like a loser. Like, you know, you're working all the time. Like I had to work. I had like, you know, my family, my mom passed away in my final year. And then like, I had to make the decision like, fuck, am I going to do it or not? Am I, you know, like there was all these things and same with my friend, same with a lot of like my friends. I'm like one of the only people I know that like got my A degree. So I got like a, a two year degree just in case anything went down. You know, I was like, at least I five years of school I did something right and so then I transferred to New York and I didn't even think of it as something rough like I just was like I gotta do it like you know you get that mindset of just like okay and so I transferred to school visual art and then like the first day like I felt so intimidated I thought like I was gonna be like the stupidest person there like or I was gonna be the worst artist because like this idea of like private art school I was like oh my god I'm probably like gonna be the the worst photographer not know anything and that just was not true <laughs> but like um i made a promise to myself i remember like this really set the tone so there was this dude and we were we ended up being friends later but like we had to dump out our backpacks the first day and that we i was taking the self-portrait class and the you know the professor of course didn't tell us and so we dump out our 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 stuff on on the tables and there was this older student she was like a international student because they were bringing an international student and um i usually wear makeup like right now i'm not but like i like super into makeup and you know she could tell she like really wanted to nice because she was an older student she was like a little self-conscious and she wore like under eyeliner like you know the kind that like sometimes gets a little smudgy and so she dumped out her purse and she had like a little nice tissue and she could tell like she had cleaned up her makeup for, for class and then she put it in her bag and i picked up onto that and so the first thing we did was this fucking student that again ended up being my friend but he's just like kind of an asshole um and he's like oh why would she put trash in her bag and the whole class just laughed at her and like she's just like no I, I and I was like and I was like you know what like you've always just like st- stuck up for people you've always not cared like are you gonna like are you gonna stick up for this person or are you just gonna like not are you gonna like be a wallflower you know and I was like fuck this and then I just was like you know what like I thought this was a critique on like our individual stuff and ba- like, you know, as an, as a portrait and like, that's a judgment. Like you're judging her. And I was like, first of all, I noticed you wear eyeliner and like, that is like, that's not trash. 
that's like to clean up your eyeliner and like that was really so like that was really like selfless of you not to throw that like on the floor and to put in your purse like and all that stuff yeah. like if you would have noticed that you would have noticed that that just has her eyeliner so like why are you saying that she has trash when she's actually like selfless and i just like went in on him and then like the perfect because the professor laughed at her too and i was like just like what the fuck and then i just like destroyed him and then like everybody's like all right let's move on and i was just like yeah i was like uh-uh and she's like thank you so much because i am like that we don't do that in my country and i was like oh it's okay like don't worry and i was just like <laughs> unfortunately that's what happens here yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like but it was just like i was just like fuck that like because i felt so guys all how humiliated she was and like i've had a lot of friends from different countries especially like at elac because a lot of a lot of students that transfer like they go to community college because it's cheaper especially when it has yeah. a and i was just like fuck it my console and i was just like no and so like that was it like from day one i was like class one <laughs> i was like no and i just always would stick up for myself and luckily um at community college, I like took philosophy, like morals of philosophy, like um, mm -hmm. uh, Chicano history, and I learned a lot about different, like um, like the internment camps, about the Chinese Exclusion Act, like about like everything that happened, like in Chicano history, and like so all this stuff, like these like alternative like history. But no, it's history it's american history and then so then when they would say like when i would be like why are there not like not white like non-western like um artists that were not like studying and they're like well there wasn't and i'm like that's just not true and so like i would like just like destroy them on that and they would be like you know like they just hated me i mean some professors really nurtured me there there was like really? two, yeah there okay. was like two professors that really really nurtured um me there like i always say like joe maida was amazing and like seth greenwald they were just beautiful professors but a bunch of like other ones just like they they took my voice as defiance and it wasn't defiance it was just, I was speaking up for communities that weren't there and also for her histories that have been silenced and erased. And they, they, I don't think they ever understood that. And that is what broke my heart time and time again, even now. Like when I say these things, I'm not being defiant. It's like, you have to stop erasing us. Like, there, like, I would always get so upset. Like, really, there wasn't any, like, Chicano photographers or there wasn't any non Western photographers, like, at this time. And I've, like, through my own history, I've learned them. But, like, you just want to see, like, a badass woman photographer, like, before you. Like, you just want to see somebody like you before you. You don't want to be the first. I don't want to be the first. Yeah. You know, that's it. So do you see it as problematic that, you know, you're like, I'm not being defined. I'm just letting y'all know. Mm -hmm. And I'm just shining light on the things that were silenced in our history because, damn, I want some, I want the next generations to not, you know, not know about this shit, right? And so do you see, a, a, is it problematic that 
even in progressive circles and whatnot, even in artist circles, that defiance is championed and glorified. When you're like, this ain't defiance. This is I'm letting y'all know. Yeah, I think that's well, the funny thing is, I feel like conservative defiance is Mm -hmm. championed. I don't think. Yeah, I feel like. um, Shit. Long as it doesn't challenge the like does, yeah, the uh, white institution too much. Yeah. yeah. Oh, totally. Like conservative oh. defiance, not true defiance. Yeah. yeah. Like it's not like because I mean I went to photo school and everybody had their own like style of shooting, and like you know my family history work. Um, you know I would say like this is an American family, but also. When you put it like it's a Mexican American family, but it's also an American family. Like you think about that, they're poor. Like we are poor, and we've assimilated, and we assimilated because my grandmother got beat in Los Angeles school. She came from El Paso, mm-hmm. and they they weren't used to them in El Paso. They weren't trying to assimilate them because they were too close to the border. But when they came to Los Angeles, they Americanized their name and they beat mm-hmm. them. And that's why my mom didn't speak Spanish. That's why I don't speak Spanish. And, you know, like, that's why, like, when people are like, what? Your family is, like, Mexican? Like, they didn't see Mexican. I'm like, yeah, well, you can't erase our our mm. history. But, like, that's what happened in Los Angeles in the 50s. And they're like, uh, I'm like, so, like, let's talk about that. So, though, this is my family. But we're still poor because they kept people poor there and all this stuff and redlined and all. And then I'm like, so, like, let's talk about it through my work. And they're like. You know who's really great? This like white guy photographer who's photographing like naked girls, like Ugh. upstate New York and like flowers. Like he's really being revolutionary. I'm like, Ugh. okay. So like that's what I'm saying. The conser- commodification yeah. of the word revolutionary. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, conservative defiance, like they would just be like, oh mm. no, like let's let's move on to like somebody else. And I like experience that so many times and like so when i was like in new york i was just like you know what fuck this place like i'm i don't want to be here like i I, i'm gonna leave like i i'm fine with like not making it here and people would be like you're crazy like this is where you need to be i'm like this is not where i need to be Mm. yeah and you had i mean from four or five years old you had that in you to say no (laughs) yeah yeah like so you're being defiant resilient resisting age four or five loudly right mm-hmm. you're doing it in college so your whole it's probably a through line there of that right are you um have there been moments where people have stood up for you where you even even if you were just taking a moment and it was perceived to be silence or you needed you know someone to have your back you got everybody's back obviously mm-hmm. there, you can remember a moment where someone had your back in a really crucial moment of perhaps vulnerability I think the person that has my back the most is probably my brother. Mm-hmm. Like, he's four years younger than me. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, like, every time, like, especially even in New York, like, I would just say, I think it's it's time for me to come home. Um, I'm worried. And he's like, so come home. It'll be okay. Like, just mm-hmm. come home. Um, and mm-hmm. so, like, I would call and I would I would cry. I would just cry so much because I'm, like, such a crybaby because, like, my mom was so emotional and I'm very emotional. And I would just, like, sob to him. Like, I would just, like, um, these really brutal critiques would happen and I would never mm-hmm. let them 
see me cry or even get like upset. Like I, even when I was like younger, I got bullied in school just for being like, you know, headstrong. And I would just walk across the street from my elementary school because I lived across the street and I would just be like, hmm, like fuck these people. And I would walk across the street and I would see my mom like cleaning our porch or something. And I would just start breaking down in Mm. tears as soon as I saw her. And she'd be like, it's okay. Like tomorrow's a new day. And so like the minute I would call my brother, like in New York, I would just cry. And he'd be like, it's okay. It's okay. And so I would Mm. say like my brother, like without my brother, like none of this would like, like I couldn't do this. Like, I like love him so much. Like people like are like, God, like you always talk about your brother. I'm like, yeah, like he is my world. Like my mom had me and then she had him. And she said like, you guys have each other. Don't fight. Like that's it. The world is like against so many people. Like you guys have to have each other's back. Mm. And I don't think I very much valued that until she passed away. And then I'm like, yeah, that's it. Like we just have each other. And so, like, he always just, like, has my back. And he's, like, he'll tell me, like, oh, I think this is working in your work. Or I think, like, I mean, he's, like, he's a writer. So he, like, thinks, like, things much different than me. And he'd be, like, I feel like you're really thinking about this in, like, uh, like uh, I don't know, a Darwinian way. Or I'm, like, oh, like, I'm, like, Frankie. And so, like, he's just, like, he's on a different brain, uh, brain wave than me. Yeah. And he, like, People are always like, how do you, how does he feel like being your subject and letting you like use his son? I'm like, he understands I need to do it. Mm-hmm. Like he, like that I have to talk about it. So he's cool. Mm-hmm. And so like, yeah, he's like there, he's there with me. And mm-hmm. so I don't, yeah, I wouldn't be able to do it without him. Oh yeah, baby bro. Yeah, my yeah. little baby. how you've talked about your experience but also like especially that time in in new york of like you were doing all that emotional work (laughs) of educating people that were like also refusing to listen yeah and fuck that like i just that had to be so exhausting and so yeah. Yeah. I think that like we don't even like I didn't even think about those terms like emotional labor. I feel like now recently like we think about those like terminologies and like back then like I didn't even think about those terms. So what's like, your sta- what, what, what's your, what are your feelings about the influx of terminologies in progressive circles? Because uh, they become they become trendy terms and, you know, like in terms- like. All the, <laughs> you yeah. know, things like, emo- you know, so emotional labor is a term. Yeah. Right. But it's all of these terms that we sometimes create ourselves mm-hmm. are being flung around, it seems, because yeah. of social media, right? Yeah, no, yeah, And does yeah. that ever, like, you're seeing, you know, you might be talking to your best friend or cousin or brother and y'all are just keeping it real with each other and one of those terms, they come up, they do, sure. And then you see on social media, some friends have done no reflection or analyzation <laughs> of, you know, where we're at politically or otherwise and they're flinging the same, very same terms around. Yeah. Right? Well, the funny thing is like... Does that annoy you ever? You know, it, it doesn't annoy me as much um, because I feel like if you're really educated, you can use those... Mm-hmm. to actually just say i refuse to have these conversations with with you because like 
Mm. My boyfriend, he's Jewish and he's like, you know, we've done a lot of work to kind of like, you know, he doesn't consider himself white. Other people in his community consider themselves white, you know, um, and his family survived like the Holocaust and like just his one, his grandfather's, um, his grandfather, like only his family like survived, like or his grandfather only survived the rest of like, I don't know how many brothers and sisters died, you know? And right. like, so he's like super woke. And like, we've been talking about the, everything that's been going on with the border and like they're have a whole community. And like, some people are just like saying some fucked up shit in his community about like, don't compare it to the Holocaust or don't, but there's stages, right? So we, me and him have been talking about it for a while. And then um, I'm like, you know what? Like, I'm just, Sometimes I'm like, you know, I'm going to invest emotional labor into this shit because fuck this, you know? Yeah. And then, like, he's been investing a lot more, like, intellectual labor into this shit and, like, actually mm. educating because mm. at first he was like, I'm not going to get... And then, like, they were saying some really crazy-ass shit um, and a lot of them came as refugees. So it's like, uh-uh, like, mm. you know? And so he started, like, sending all these articles and, you know, sometimes you can't win Facebook wars, you know? Like, yeah. and I just don't participate in them but he got too upset and so like for me um i'm like in a lot of like just women of color like instagram things like i follow them and like i post my stuff and i feel like i i've seen like memes and stuff like that where people are just saying like it's okay to not do the emotional labor like to ed educate people and i feel sometimes like especially in grad school I have like just a silent sometimes now saying like, you know what? I got to like say if I have to do this I, and if this was like class time and I, you know, and I don't want to get into shit with like some crazy ass professor. I'm going to be like, you know what? Fuck them. I'm right. not I'm not right. going to do this emotional labor. Like they can go to hell, yeah. you know, it's not and, your duty to educate. them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Like I'm not going to get paid to like educate but other people i'm like you know what no i am because there there's like more of it um so it's like a given pull but i like that i learn i learn the terminologies because it's like it's good to like know that there is that there should be a term then yeah. i can say i'm not doing the emotional and then you thing. lean into the conversations that just feel real to you yeah but then yeah. i can also say i am not doing the emotional labor today right, right. or i am doing intellectual labor because I feel so like you, you use terms to make decisions. Yeah. Day, day in, day out. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm not doing intellectual labor. Fuck them. Like, you yeah. know what I mean? Or like, they're not paying me for this. They're paying for this lady for this. So yeah. like, you know, like, uh, uh, screw this shit. Like, so cool. Especially yeah. if they're just going <laughs> to like reject it. Like, you know, if you put it out there and it's just like, well, I don't think, yeah. was it really, or, or yeah. you know, or you were saying like it's coded or veiled racism or stuff like yeah. that it's like I, I, yeah but i feel like with the internet like it's also like taught and it's taught all of us that it's okay you know what i mean so it's like the 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 racists or the you know the passive aggressives the people that want to use it against us like the people that are more intelligent that want to dismantle it it's like oh you can come you can come for us we'll just we'll totally annihilate you mm -hmm. in terms of like arguing with us you're not gonna get us in terms of this so it's like right. i'm fine with them using it because like a lot of times when they argue with me on stuff like they're not gonna win 
you know so it's like go ahead and say emotional labor like you're not gonna get me when it comes to like intellectual labor your your work is focused on your life and community um how do you hope it spirals out of just of those circles to influence and empower other communities yeah so that's like i think about that a lot because like it's started with my family right and then like it started with my family like very very small and then it's like now a little bit bigger to my larger family and now it's like community and then people are always like oh my god like what are you gonna do next and the funny thing is because like my my work has like stamps right so the first stamp or like it has public stamps so my per my public stamp was i unveiled my first show in 2006 which was at the vincent price art museum in in east los angeles and then the second stamp was last year at the main museum um and downtown los angeles and so i had two solo shows two different bodies of work in a year part and but the funny thing is my first show i had been working on that work for 10 years and the second show i had been working on that for four years and then like i got the opportunity to, like we love this work we want to nurture it we want to help you and we want this we want to show it and that's not typical you're not it's not typical to unveil a different body of work in a year you know um and then like so then the question is like oh what's the next but how do, how do i see it growing so like i i think like identity community like everything like what i want and how I educate people when I go and I show my work. Cause most of the time when I show my work, I actually never show I dream of Los Angeles when I, like when people invite me to like artist talk, especially like youth and like under 18 in high school, I show my first body of work mm. and that's some hard stuff for kids to see, but they get it. And I'm mm. like, look, I'm sorry, kids. Like we're going to see some hard stuff and we're going to talk about hard things. But like almost all of them are like, yes, miss my like uncle got murdered. My cousin got murdered mm. or my mom's sick or my dad's sick. They got cancer. Or, like, you know, a lot of it's cancer right now, you know? Mm. And so I'm like, you know what? You don't have to do photography. You don't, you can do writing, you can do music you can do whatever but you know what don't keep it inside like mm -hmm. don't keep that inside because so the world like we're taught and especially in our communities communities of color to like don't talk about it outside to keep that inside like we don't talk about that in outside community like don't share your business in the street and you know what no you know what I, I'm here to tell you like you can go ahead and share that and that's like the more we keep inside, all the more the oppressors or the people that hate us or don't want us on our own land so, or all of our land that is not our land other than indigenous. When they see, uh, like when we're keeping stuff inside, they're able to like think that they can prove their point that we're nothing, yeah. right? Like here's an example. If you're keeping everything inside and the oppressor can be like, see, they're nothing. They have nothing to show. And, you know, I guess I'm wondering well, your interpretation of some of that is like, you know, the stolen land and property and those narratives, systematic oppression, constantly knocking us down since the beginning, killing us, technology, leaving the poor behind, social media distorting us so far from reality and natural ways of being. I mean, I guess when I say natural ways of being, I'm, I'm thinking of like, that's why we all like cats and dogs and babies. They're just natural. Yeah. Right. As black and brown folks, 
what's left of who we are for the world to see? Yeah. If not in our art, like, what do you think? What's left for us? What's left of us? I mean, we're still here. Yeah. We're still here. And like, we'll yeah. still, we're still here. <laughs> we're still here. You know, I, perhaps we need more unity in that, in that notion and effort. What do you think are the implications of people turning their backs on being resilient? What do you mean? That, like, it? so the people who are of that empowerment and f- truly feel that we'll, we're still here at resilience. Um, I guess in terms of unity, like, are we, I think, we, you know, are we not unified enough in that notion you know, that we'll, we're still here? I think I understand it of not being like of unity because I feel like. And like, I think I said it earlier, to be a survivor. So much of survivor mentality is to be alone. Mm. Like you are alone. And you're like, you know, you, I mean, it goes back to hunter gatherer. And I know some of them, like, you know, they were like nomadic. And a lot of them, they're just like, you know, like, shit, I'm gonna go get my, like, you know, buffalo. And I'm gonna, and you know, and like, it goes back to the most- primal. yeah, Yeah, primal shit. You are in primal. You are the most primal person. And I'm not like, you know, I'm saying even in my own mentality yeah. of like when I've been at my ports, you know, um, after my mom died, you know, and me and my brother, we had shit. You know what I mean? Like just going and going to have to hear some bullshit like sermon uh, to get like a food bank thing and like just sitting right there mm. and like having to like search which the yogurts were good and everything like that to survive you know what i mean like and you like i wasn't very social with all my friends and i have a lot of friends you know but it's just like you're just surviving like you know what i mean it's like i don't have i can go to rallies i can't do anything i just gotta survive you're just living not even in the day in the moment you know what i mean and i feel like my therapist talks to me so much about transferring my mindset from surviving to thriving Mm. you know what i mean and i feel like even though we're still here so much of us it's so hard for us to transfer from like surviving and being like nomadic and hunter-gatherer to communal from Mm -hmm. going from that you know that in our in our dna and it's so damn hard because so many of my friends that have survived so much catastrophic disasters they're nomadic you know they're so nomadic like we'll like dm each other once in a while like hey what's up but like you know they have like their one or two kids they got like their man but like they're just they're like you know we're all like scattered mm-hmm. you know and they don't want to return to this land like i just like and talked about that in the panel like people who grew up in east la and boyle heights or south central they will never return here. They like don't want anything to do with here or in Los Angeles because we all grew up in the 90s. Like for me to be here, they're like, girl, like you have this career, like you got this white man, like it's not my set mindset, it's theirs. And it goes back to like, you know, all that. And they're like, why would you be living right there? Like you need to like, you know, move somewhere else. You need to go somewhere. You need to get out of there. I'm like, no, I don't want to leave. Like that's what they want us to do. They want us to leave. And they're like, you're crazy. But for them, they're, we're all still surviving, you know? And so it's, I, I, I feel for it because like, I understand that, 
you mm. know, that survivor mentality, mm-hmm. you know, of just mm-hmm. wanting to live for the next moment, mm-hmm. you know, and I feel like as communities of color, it's like we have to heal and like hold each other's hand and rub each other's back and say it's okay and cry and like trust each other yeah. again because so many years have gone where we just like feel like paranoid to even be next to each other like and mm. say like oh like you know it's like nah like i can't live like i can't even stand still i just gotta keep moving so for the ones that, for, the, for those standing tall in resistance in community saying we're still here we're also still talking about those nomadic survivors who might not physically be present at a protest or at an immigration rally like we're saying we'll st- we're still here you're you're talking about those same people that you're trying to keep in touch with yeah yeah, yeah that's i mean that's, yeah i'm i'm acknowledging those people mm-hmm. because not all of us have like this emotional privilege mm-hmm. you know emotional privilege to be able to like do this stuff don't you steal that term hipsters <laughs> how do you balance cynicism and hope um how do i balance cynicism and hope you know i'm i'm not very i'm not a cynical person you know i'm i feel like I can't be. I I look at my nephew Louis. Like I feel so emotional even talking about it. And if I'm cynical, um, that means I don't believe in the future for him. You know? And so I'm hopeful. I mean I say all this shit for him and for everybody, for all the little babies being born, for all the little babies at the border, for all the babies that are right now trekking Um, coming to America, like you said, this isn't our land. Like, this land is for, like, the hopeful. Mm. And, like, this land is for people who are, like, dreamers, you know? Like, my family crossed over here because of the Mexican Civil War in the 1900s. And it didn't work out for so well. But I'm still, like, dreaming for my nephew, you know? Um, and I believe other people, they deserve the right to accomplish their hopes and dreams, you know? So it's like, I'm not a cynical person, you know? I want to keep pushing, like, my boyfriend, he's like, he can be cynical and say, like, it might not work out, but I'm like, you know what? No, like, my nephew he's the future and there's other little kids and we need to keep pushing and we need to have this positive energy and fighting till the day i die so because it's not my it's not my land it's their land what are you tired of hearing a lot of people ask me about gentrification um and that just happens because i was um well heights is like a really hot spot and that's being gentrified in los angeles and a lot of times when people ask me specifically about Boyle Heights and gentrification, I feel like they want to be, they want me to like kind of validate gentrification or kind of like say like what's going on or like things. And I just like, I'm not interested in having that conversation. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like with anything I talk about, like I think it's much more complex. Like my mom worked in, um, downtown Los Angeles, she worked at this candy factory, like this high-end candy factory in, in 
downtown, right? And so the, these lawy, lawyers and city planners used to work there and they used to always buy candy for their wives and they were like my mom was like total sweetheart so like everybody loved her and they used to tell my mom to buy her property in the 90s and my mom's like i can't buy property i'm like a single mom she's like well we're gonna redevelop downtown and after that we're gonna redevelop well heights and this was 20 years ago and she's like so buy your property now so like this was way yeah and like so it's not an overnight it's not an overnight thing. Like gentrification is calculated. And there is like, you know, there's people that manufacture this shit, you know? And so like, when I start to talk about these things, people are like, so should I buy a house there? I'm like, yeah, oh, you know, I'm God. like, yeah. And so I just get so tired of that. I'm like, so you're not interested in hearing about how people are being displaced and like all this other stuff. You're just, you want me to say it's okay. Mm. that you're displacing people you know so it's, mm. it's just i get so tired of that you know when is making your art most fun uh, i would say it's not really fun it's just necessary you know it's it's a lot of work i mean i would say you guys understand that from contacting the person to like triple contacting them <laughs> um making sure we're going to meet at a location um i think the most beautiful moment is when we're actually at the moment where i'm looking at the viewfinder and it's mm. happening mm -hmm. um i would say that's the most gratifying moment um but it's it's not really a fun experience it's it's really stressful mm -hmm. it's hard um but it's necessary mm -hmm. you know so it's not fun but it's it's necessary even like with my nephew um i photograph him he's right there he's eight now and he does not like being photographed anymore <laughs> so um he has like said no more um but i got to photograph him recently and that was really nice yeah. um and so i i appreciate that um so yeah i would say art making is not very fun um what but about the unveilings the unveilings are really nice i i really really like unveilings i actually don't like going to gallery openings because i'm really uh shy and so like mm -hmm. when people are like oh you're the artist i like talking to people like i like going with the uh, schools and talking to them so yeah i would say i just like educating people but i'm just like shy and stuff like that i mean i i love the process you know what i mean it's sure. like I would not give up this for anything. What do you want listeners to know? Definitely just don't judge people by their parents. I mean, that's that's why I I do my photography. Like, I mean, I that's why I do the oral histories. Like, I'm like so tired of like stereotypes. Like that was what started it all was like stereotyping people trying to stereotype me. Like I won't like was like dismantling stereotypes. And especially when it came to like Los Angeles, like we are like, if you like see like movies in the eighties and like the nineties, like Los Angeles has like this long history of like stereotypes or like Los Angeles movies mm -hmm. and like, I don't even see like maybe Mi Vida Loca. No, no, not Mi Vida Loca. Mi Familia. Mm. Like Mi Familia was like a beautifully made movie. But like 
so many other like movies just show us in like stereotypes and like it's so frustrating so it's like you know there you could be seeing somebody anywhere wherever you're located and you think you know that person and like you know what they can be a mother or a father they can be like somebody that's just hardworking. they could be going through the worst thing internally in their like heart and brain you don't know anything about that person like that is like so much of the problems in like our society is that we stereotype people and it's like it needs to stop you know and yeah what art are you currently taking in that's really giving you a jolt recharging you um so what am i currently looking at i like look at a lot of photo books you can like mm-hmm. clitter like like i like look i click through so many like instagram stuff and like i just like love i love old books oh, what's that latoya yeah we we're 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 doing triple emails with her right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's like, she's my favorite, favorite, like, photographer. Like, I try, I got her to sign. This isn't the one I got signed, but I have one in New York. I lost it to somebody, though. To be honest, like, I look at a lot of, um, I look at a lot of artists on Instagram. Like, mm-hmm. that is how I discover a lot of artists. Like, yeah. Yeah. I just, I love, like, Instagram. It sounds, like, funny, but, like, that's how I connect with a lot of, like, um people of color artists and like that's how they connect mm-hmm. with me and like we like fangirl out um through each other's like yeah. images and like also narratives um like i'm right now able to buy books because like i'm in grad school and i have to and then i could also write that stuff off yep. through <laughs> mm-hmm. like student stuff but like i i love instagram like it's been able to open up the the world for me and be able to connect with other artists so um i just i look at it and i'm like oh my god this person's doing like amazing work in like let's say like kansas or like mm-hmm. brooklyn or the bronx or like sacramento mm-hmm. or like texas so like that's like that's how i like find artists and like i find out what people are doing or like i'll look at like short videos and then i'll like go to their youtube or like i'll look at like an image and then i go and i see and i scroll through like their website and so like that's really like for the past few years how i've been like connecting to other artists and like how we like message each other and so that's like been influential to the connection of us Or you cynics out there, I might be one of them. The internet is a damn good thing as well, as well. No, I mean, I definitely, I think the internet, like, it can be a really ugly thing. But to be honest, like, for me, I I use my platform because there's so many limits to things. Like, I couldn't buy books for so long. Or in New York, I didn't buy books because I felt like I can't stay here. Or even here, like, mm-hmm. when my family was like, I'm so scared of buying things because I don't want to be weighed it down. And, like, yeah. for me, the internet, or at least, like, I have a laptop. And it's like, mm-hmm. I can connect with people. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I feel like at least, like, I can go to Starbucks and, like, 
connect to the Wi-Fi and like I can have a little ghetto phone or my laptop or whatever. And I'm not limited. And when I was younger, I was so limited. Like we did not have like a computer until I was like 18. I didn't have like a cell phone until like, I don't know, 17, but it did not have the internet. Mm -hmm. So like now, like I hear people and they're like, yeah, I like follow you on Instagram or I've like seen your work on like my friend show me. And like, it makes me happy because like, I'm all about more information and yeah, people mm-hmm. can be like distorted and there's all hell of like, like all this hell of like false stuff. But also mm-hmm. like, I feel like people are so much smarter, like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and they're able to like kind of decipher that and be like, you can get a lot more information. Um, and so, yeah, I just feel like you're not limited and like, you know, some of these books are expensive, but like, I love them. And so like, for me to be able to give my workout and access out to people, it's like, I'm honored to do that. Well, we're honored to be sitting in your studio in Los Angeles, uh, on the road. We're so grateful that you're our first guest while we're on a little tour Yay. here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you, Star. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you, Star. Thank you so much. And uh, what you listeners don't know is that uh, our LA trip happened, you know, pretty quickly. So we reached out to uh, a lot of artists last minute, and Star got back to us so quickly. And we were so grateful to have the time to sit down and chat with her. We hope you loved it as much as we did. It was an absolute treasure. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Star. We consider you a friend, not just of the show, but personally, we consider you a friend. You're amazing. And uh, let's let's keep the fight going. And you inspire us every day to do that. And we want the listeners out there also to keep inspiring us. So we need to be engaged. Are you following us on Instagram at Weapon of Choice Podcast or on Facebook at Weapon of Choice Podcast or on Twitter, as D-Ray likes to say, at Weapon Choice Pod. And if you want to drop us a solid, solid, super long line, you can email us at Weapon of Choice Fans at gmail.com. That's Type Weapon it out, of choice everybody. Fans. Weapon of Choice Fans at gmail.com hit us up we'd love to hear from you why because we want to know what art are you taking in we want to hear from you we want to know what is recharging you what's inspiring you uh you know sharing sharing what art moves us is all is all what i'm here for so reach out to us send us a line we would love to hear from you in our next episode we interviewed misha Grimm. While we were out in los angeles she had moved out there from minneapolis minneapolis yes and we caught her in L.A. and caught up with her. And she spit some fire because she bad. And y'all know it. For those of y'all know, y'all know it. For those of y'all don't, make sure you tune into the next episode featuring Misha Grimm. What do we got to play us out this week, Tommy? <laughs> y'all know where I'm going with this. Dismembered, an unarmed compilation album out of the Twin Cities. Hip hop, real hip hop. And the next song you're going to hear is called Breathe. Headlined by the one and only property. Take your time and really dig in to this song, Breathe. Property and others are spitting that truth. And if you like that whole, if you've been liking what we've been dropping, because of course you have from Dismembered and Unarmed, you can check out their Bandcamp, dismemberedandunarmed.bandcamp.com. Do it. Do not delay. Go out there. Listen to the whole album. It's amazing. Buy it on iTunes. Spend that money. If you're going to buy one hip hop album all year, yes, one. All these other people putting out these seven track albums, whatever. This is 14 tracks, goddammit. Go get it. We'll holla at you in the next episode. Love y'all. Peace.
Just in the game. 